great Diedrich Bonhoeffer, a German theologian and pastor who we've chatted about from time to time, once said this about preaching. He said that good preaching allows the risen Christ to walk among his people. You ever heard this quote or this idea? Good preaching invites or allows the risen Christ to come out and walk among his people. Sometimes after sermons, people say, I love it when you said da-da-da. And I went back through my manuscript and I thought, I, I never said that. But I'm glad that you really enjoyed that and like that. That's awesome. Uh, one of the explanations of that, I know this may seem a little mystical, a little spiritual of me to say, is that when a preacher preaches the word of God, we're actually not supposed to just be giving our little opinions. We're not pundits up here, but we're proclaiming the living word, the risen word. And when we proclaim the living word, the risen Christ walks around and talks to his people. And I want to tell you that when Jesus walks among his people and talks to them, he stirs up trouble. Jesus preaches here in his hometown at synagogue, at the synagogue in Nazareth, and he's only like two minutes into his very brief sermon. It's a Mark Twain quote, right? I'm, I'm sorry I wrote such a long letter. I didn't have enough time to write a shorter one. Jesus had all the time in eternity, and so you talk about pointed two minutes or less. It's not happening here this morning. Don't, don't, don't get. <laughs> Jesus refers to two prophets in his short sermonette, Elijah and Elisha. And these are two prophets, like many prophets in the Old Testament, that had to stand up and they had to speak truth to power. They had to stand up to kings and nations. And as, as intimidating as that might seem, Jesus stands up in the office of prophet. There's other things he's doing, but one of the things is he's showing himself as the true prophet. And he has to challenge a more totalitarian and violent audience than Elijah and Elijah ever faced. And you know what he had to face? He had to face the human heart. He had to face people like you and me. And he walks into this hometown synagogue of his and he begins to proclaim both grace and truth. There's a really sacrilegious, inappropriate comedy, sketch comedy that talks about how I like to picture Jesus as, some of you know what I'm referring to, um, we all have our little images of Jesus that we like to hold on to. Um, this one disrupts and challenges the preference that I have of Christ. I love how gentle Christ is over and over again. In, in scenes where people are incredibly needy, he is so incredibly gentle. And I, by the way, feel called as a disciple, as a father, as a friend, as a pastor, to help people see this side of Christ. And at the same time, Jesus, who is full of grace, is full of truth. And when he loves us, he challenges us with his truth. Jesus was both alluring and offensive all at the same time. You don't get one without the other. He is both alluring. You're drawn to him. You want to lean in. And at the same time, if you get the real Christ, you will be utterly offended by him. He begins his sermon by proclaiming in his hometown synagogue what we read in Isaiah 61 last week. I won't repeat myself. Last week, we saw the glorious pronouncement of the nature of God's kingdom. It was incredible what he said. 
The, the blind will see, the, the lame will be healed, the captive will be set free. And he proclaims the year of the Lord's favor. And then at the end, he says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled, like right now, i.e., I am the Messiah, and I have ushered in this new era, this new moment where the acceptable year of the Lord is now being proclaimed. And all of his hometown uh, Nazarenes hear this and go, this is incredible. This is, this is just awesome. We've heard of you and what you've been doing around Capernaum, and here you are, you're one of us. You're, you're Mary and Joseph's son, aren't you? This is just incredible. What a great teacher and prophet you are. And, and, and they, they quote this, this thing that often gets misinterpreted, physician, heal yourself. We hear sort of a cynical thing. It's really, it was, it was proverbial to say, take care of, look after yourself, Jesus. You're so busy helping others. Won't you, as you go around Galilee, take care of yourself, look after yourself. And they're so proud. They couldn't be more proud of their little local preacher boy. But something shifts in verse 24. If you have your Bibles in Luke 4, there's an interesting play on words that in his little short sermon from verse 19 to verse 24, something shifts. Their acceptance of him, their enjoyment of him actually turns to rage. And Jesus says that, you know, you'll quote this proverb to me, you'll want to see me do these things in your midst, but I tell you that in verse 24, no prophet is acceptable in his own hometown. What has he just proclaimed in verse 19? The acceptable year of the Lord. And then he says, but you, you here that are hearing me, find me unacceptable. They are offended by what Jesus goes on to say. So much so that the most violent, sort of wrathful, sort of mob-like mentality takes over at his Elijah and Elijah comment. They are offended for two specific reasons, and I want to look at them both. And I'll tell you, as I've wrestled with this over the years, and particularly the last week in preparing to come and to be with you, I, I want you to, to reckon with the reality that this offense is part of the human condition. The people in Nazarene, Nazareth really weren't that different than you and I, and so we have to go, what, what were they so offended by? Why is it that the acceptable year of the Lord is so unacceptable to them in this moment? Two reasons. Here's the first one. Just two-point sermon. That's pretty good. That'll cut it down a little bit. Here's the first one. They are offended by the open invitation of the kingdom of God. They are offended that the Messiah, who they had an understanding of what the Messiah would come and bring, is bringing this kingdom, the acceptable year of the Lord, and he's actually going to go out and invite all those dirty Gentiles to come in and be in on it. They are offended by the open invitation of the kingdom. Now, there are some cultural differences between us and first century Nazarites. These were Jewish people who had the idea that when the Messiah comes, he will set up an earthly kingdom and that earthly kingdom will be political. Israel will be in control. He will overthrow these nasty Gentile leaders that are lording it over us. He'll free us from oppression. This is why they like the first part of his sermon is they're like, freedom from oppression? Freedom for the captives? He's talking about us. We love you, Jesus. Preach it. Say, say less. I had to learn what that meant this last month. Say less, Jesus. They like it. 
But then he shifts it. He, he, he goes walking among his people and talking. And I'll tell you, when Jesus does that, he stirs up trouble. And he will be both alluring and offensive to every part that he encounters and to every nation, every community he encounters. And he confronts them with the story of Elijah and Elisha, really kind of random. You know, Jesus knew the Old Testament really well. And he reminds them of these two prophetic moments. Just briefly, uh, notice what's happening in these two prophetic moments. They're very similar. Um, one, in Elijah's case, he says that God knew there were needs in all of Israel. There were widows who had needs. But isn't it interesting, Jesus tells his local hometown crowd, that God didn't send help to them. He sent help to the pagan, unclean, immoral, irreligious widow. He names her, uh, but only, uh, would you take note of this? God only went to Zarephath. Uh, su surprise. You think that you understand the nature of the kingdom, but I'm telling you, God is going out and is inviting all nations and all tribes and all people. And actually this little word only, we got to come back to this only to, to her wasn't just a mistake in this one instance. He quotes from another prophetic moment, Elisha. Now, what's helpful about this is that one, the widow, is really poor and really needy, like physically really poor and needy. This other Gentile leper who's in desperate need of help, God sends help only to this man. Now, this man was an enemy of Israel, a military enemy, wealthy, powerful, and God only goes to him, Naaman the Syrian, an enemy. So who is invited in the acceptable year of the Lord? Who's in on this favor that Jesus as the Messiah is proclaiming? You and I, if we knew the Sunday school answer is everyone's invited. Everyone's invited. One is rich and one is poor, but Jesus shows that God is actually a God who prioritizes the outsider. And this is incredibly offensive to them. Luke, Luke, the book of Luke that we're reading from, is actually a two-part volume work. The gospel of Luke goes together with the book of Acts. They were written by the same person. Luke is setting us up to hear the nature of the kingdom, it, it's not a diff, these aren't two different books that say two different things. There's a, there's a central, clear message throughout both narratives. And what happens is everyone keeps being surprised at who gets invited in. God is not only for us, He's also for them. He's for them, for her. And we know that by the time we get to Acts chapter 10, even Jesus' disciples don't get this. The open invitation to the kingdom of God is so radically inclusive that it freaks the Jewish community out. Luke is helping us to see that when Jesus stands up and proclaims here in Luke 4 that the good news is for everyone. This means every tribe, every tongue, Every, the word that's used is ethne, every single people group, God is offering an invitation to the acceptable year of the Lord. And so Jesus is stirring things up. 
He's, he's challenging them in a major way. Later on, after Bonhoeffer, another theologian and famous Christian leader in the Reformation, Luther, once said that wherever the gospel is faithfully preached, demons are set loose. God's not just for us. God is also for them. And he calls all of them to repentance. Now, um, I want you to see that part of what's happening in Luke 4 is Jesus is challenging two realities in their hearts that might be present in ours too. One, the open invitation to all I've named, but let me go just one step or two deeper than that and say Jesus challenges their nationalism. He challenges their nationalism. I'm amazed over these last couple years that how many divisions have sprung up in local churches across our country. We're in a really divisive moment. I have a number of friends that are pastors in different parts of the country and um, uh, in ways that I have not experienced, by the way, if you're wondering, at the level that they have. The level of division that has split churches and church boards over things like mask wearing, over race relations, um, over politics. Uh, we're in a really divisive moment. And as I make these comments, I want you to hold it up in, in tension with what Christ is challenging in his hometown of Nazareth. They're offended because God, God has arrived and has said, the acceptable year of the Lord is not your exclusive possession, but it's actually for all people and all tribes and all tongues. And so what Christ begins to show us, not only in this moment, but throughout the rest of his work, and certainly in the book of Acts, is that the church is to be a place where we find our unity and identity in Christ, not with any particular nation state or any particular party platform. We are utterly different in God's kingdom. And this makes us, this makes us strangers in any land where God's church is present, not just in North America, but in any country, God's people are really different than the status quo because we have a God who has proclaimed the acceptable year of the Lord for all people. Christ challenges their nationalism. There's a little verse, I wasn't familiar with it, that familiar with it. It's in the book of John. It's in one of those first, second, third John passages. And it, it's this wonderful little pastoral exhortation. Um, little lambs, guard your hearts against idols. Uh, idolatry is really hard to identify in our own hearts. But like other idolatries, the idolatry of one's own nation can sometimes be hard to put your finger on. And if you consider yourself to be a disciple of Christ, a follower of him, in this, this day, you need to do some work on identifying the difference between what it means to care and be proud and to celebrate your heritage. That's patriotism and it's not a sin. It's, it's a good and right thing. But that can bleed over into a nationalism that is a form of idolatry. And Christ confronts that here in the people of God that thought they were gathering and sort of had it all together. It's offensive to them because Christ is saying, your identity can never be fused with anything other than me and my kingdom. See, nationalism blends into, it fuses God's blessing 
to one particular narrative and says, we are the exclusive possessors, this people group or this tribe or this nation state somehow has a monopoly on God's blessing. Instead, we're strangers and exiles. What an interesting term. What a political term, really, to use of the people of God. You are like refugees in the world, Christ says of his church. So he challenges their nationalism. He also challenges their racism. We begin to see that one of the major problems they have is even where Jesus is going to eat and sleep. Uh, It was a sin in their worldview for a rabbi to even walk through the kind of Sumerian land that he would walk through. And Jesus would intentionally take certain routes and dine in certain places, so much so that one of the reasons he's rejected is Jesus Christ becomes known as a friend of tax collectors and and sinners, a glutton and a drunkard. He, He invited the Gentiles to come in to be part of this. And this challenged their racism. Now, I've not gone that deep, but I'm just naming. They're offended by the fact that the invitation to God's kingdom means that there's sort of equal footing and equal distance at the cross, that nobody has sort of a priority seating arrangement around the Messiah, that we're all invited in. And this is incredibly offensive to them. The second thing is they're offended by grace. They're offended, they're offended by grace. Did you know how threatening the message of the gospel of grace is to moralistic religious people. People who think that they've sort of done enough to maybe just need a little bit of help. They're offended by this. How could I say this in relation to what we've just read in Luke 4? Because these are people who are way on the outside of moral religious lives, Naaman and Zarephath. These are like the the last in line. And Jesus says that God prioritized them and put them first in line. And if you can imagine the parable of all parables in Jesus's teaching, um, some people actually call it the gospel story within the gospels. It's the parable of the prodigal sons, the elder brother and the younger brother. And if you'll think this way, it's really fascinating. It's helpful when you read other passages because what you see happening is almost a reenactment of this scene over and over again, where the little brother, the outsider, the rebellious one, the one whose life is a total wreck and a mess in in terms of the way his society would view him, is actually invited in and feels the embrace of the father and the moral, religious, dutiful person has his arms crossed, and actually, it's worse than that, gets angry with the father, doesn't he? If you know the elder brother story, he's actually angry at God. That's precisely what happens in this moment with Christ and his hearers in Nazareth. They are offended by the message of grace that all are invited in, no matter how together their lives are or how messy their lives are. And it's grace. It's a gift. Um. How do you know if you find grace offensive? I found it helpful uh, years and years ago. I came across a writer and pastor that used this term. Most of us like to think of ourselves as spiritually middle class. 
And I gotta tell you, in a fairly affluent part of North America and North Texas, I think we need to hear this challenge to us. You are spiritually middle class if you think, you know, I don't need a lot of help from God, but, but I need a little. So, um, you know, just, just top me off. I'm, I'm pretty good, but, but just help me out in these couple of areas. I've kind of got it together, but if you could just shore up, you know, the areas where I feel like my life isn't quite correct. And churches actually become quite adept at trying to help people meet their felt needs rather than showing us a God who comes to the spiritually outcast. What's the word? Only. Only. One other way to know if you're treating God as a God who comes to the middle class is if you get really angry at him when life doesn't go your way. See, what happens in religious and moralistic communities of faith is we often try to control God through our moralism, our duty, our religion even. We think that if I live this way, then God has to do this because, you know, blessing and cursing thing. Like if I do this, then God will. And when God doesn't give me what I think he ought to give me, I actually get really angry. That's what happens here. Because of the life and death of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God has arrived and Jesus shows up and he says, now is the time. I'm proclaiming the acceptable year of the Lord. And here's the good news. It is all grace. It is all gift. And you may think that it's not as offensive to you, but I gotta tell you, in our, in our North American, North Texas, self-made culture. We are a performance-driven culture if there ever has been one on earth. It is a threatening thing to say, the whole foundation of my life is based upon gift, grace. Nothing I've done, nothing we've done, it is totally unmerited love and gift from God. It sounds really simple. I know it does. It sounds really simple. And yet it isn't. It's amazing to me how vulnerable it feels when I'm in the posture of the receiver. Like even on a human level, how uncomfortable it often makes the average North Texan to be in a place of just receiving, of not earning. We are earners We've been, we've been formed and discipled since we were little children to earn and perform, to get a certain grade, to make a certain kind of money, to get into the right school, to have the right resume, to look a certain way on the outside. And we have a faith that, that is opposed to everything about that performance and says that the entire foundation of your life is gift, is graced. The grace of God tells us that there's nothing about God's love that we can earn, deserve, merit, any of that. Sometimes we read and remind each other, it's, it's actually a verse from Scripture, that it's more blessed to give than to receive. That's true. But I actually believe for us, it's much harder to receive than to give. And they find it offensive that Jesus is inviting people from every tribe and tongue. He's creating not a little ghetto of all like-minded people that look the same and vote the same and act the same in every challenge that comes at us. He's not creating, he's, he's calling people from every tribe and tongue. Before the throne will be every shade, every language. And he says, that's 
That's the work I'm doing in the world. And then he says, and those that are invited are only those who realize the cup isn't half full. It's totally empty apart from you. And this is very difficult to hear when we have lives that feel pretty full, that we come empty. It's threatening to admit that finally, at the end of the day, we're totally at the mercy of a gift and grace. I never heard him say the line, I, I don't have it up in front of you, but the last quote I want to share is from a guy named Frederick Buchner. He said, there is nothing you have to do, nothing. There is nothing you have to do. There is nothing you have to do to be in God's good grace. Rather than this being our offense, like rage at Jesus, these two little things become our playbook to be on mission in the world. Isn't that interesting that he flips it around? He, he, he like changes the flow of, of the stream inside our own hearts where instead of trying to hold on to everything because there's not enough to go around and my life is all about me and mine and project self here in North Texas, he, he shifts the flow of the current such that we begin to see God's abundant grace is available for everyone, every nation and every neighborhood, every neighbor. And so who have you written off? He invites you to radically change your view of who's in and who's out, of who's invited and who's not invited. And not only that, but then it's not performance. It's not striving. It's not trying to be good enough. It's, it's all grace. This becomes our playbook for being on mission in the world. God has sent Jesus, we saw at the beginning of this sermon. He's anointed him to proclaim, and then he pivots and this is what happens in Epiphany. He pivots to his disciples and eventually says, I'm sending you, I'm commissioning you. And kind of like Jeremiah, we go, I'm, I'm young. Or kind of like Moses, we say, well, I can't talk. And no, 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 he's got the right guy in Jeremiah and Moses, and he's got the right people in you and me. And he wants us to go in the joy, proclaiming the acceptable year of the Lord. Father, would you send us out, your people, broken as we are, weak as we are, prone to be possessive of you and your blessings as we are. Oh, Father, prone as your children to perform and think that we can somehow earn your love. Oh, come and show us and offend us this morning by your grace and your, your welcome of all people, people that we would even want to write off. Lord, make us, Church of the Resurrection, the kind of local church that is a stranger in this place. Different, different, make us different. We ask this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.